last Sunday night. We had a great time discussing how our year, quarter has been so far financially and ministerially and all those things. But we also looked ahead to the future of where are we going, what are we doing going ahead. Um, and we launched what we call our Go Forward Fund, which is basically on top of our normal tithes and offerings, which, you know, everyone here is so generous in the way you give to the Lord. We try and raise up extra money so that we can do things that we can't do on our current budget. Um, so this is over and above giving. And we have a few kind of key things that we we're asking people to give towards. Um, and you can choose how much you want to give to each project, or you can just put as and where needed, and it'll kind of... Um, are you able to turn me down a little bit? I feel like I'm booming. I don't need too much help with the values projection. Uh, and so we're trying to do three things. Build locally, so trying to um, help me go full-time teaching. Um, I'm actually working for Barker for a week in, in a week and a half's time, so I'm going to do finally some casual teaching. Um, but it kind of makes it hard because I have to reorganize things. And so the hope is for me to go full-time here this year. We want to raise money up to send leaders and train leaders. We're going to help Simon Walker go to Pastors College. He's from our other church in Marunga. Um, awesome guy. Good, you know, we, we really want to be a part of helping him go. Then we care regionally. Um, in the Philippines, we support this organization called ICM, and they do phenomenal work over there helping the ultra, ultra poor. And they do it through local churches. And so we partner with local pastors who deliver these programs to help with values education and sanitation and all these different um, things to help improve their standard of living, connect them to the church um, and give them a better life outcome. And then finally, um, helping globally. We, we're going to be part of helping plant a church in Ethiopia, which is pretty awesome. Um, one of my mates, Michael Granger, is planting that church. And if you receive our Emerging Nations newsletter, um, he shared some amazing stories of him meeting secretly and with Somalian Muslim women and men and make, helping this disciple maker, you know, because of the context in Africa, reach out to um, all these Muslims. And that was because he was there and helping out. And so we want to help him, um, you know, plant this church. And so all your money will go to those projects. Um, and so please be praying. See where the Lord leads you. Come with an open hand. Ask God, how do you want me to give this year? Uh, and then step out in faith. Every year, it's sort of like for us, as we do it, we're like, really? That much? And we're like, kind of like, oh, hello. We kind of throw it like that. And then we fall over and we're like, oh, we'll see how we turn out. But, you know, we get the joy of sowing into eternity um, and we'll reap it there. So that's our Go Forward Fund. So please give on top of your normal giving. Don't replace your giving for the Go Forward Fund. Otherwise, then we can't make our normal budget. Um, but if you'd like to give over and above, you can fill out the form and you can put it in the offertory box at the back. Not next week, I think, but the weekend after or something like that. So we want to give you plenty of time to think it through, um, not make a rush decision and come to a good, um, cheerful giving response. Okay. There you go, Henry. You can fill yours out now. Just add an extra zero, it'll be good. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we've been going through this series on Ephesians, which is basically, you know, the Apostle Paul writing to a church and a collection of churches in Asia Minor in about, you know, late 50 AD, early 60 AD. They were planted by him. The gospel had spread rapidly. They were a young church that is slowly becoming mature. They most of them were from pagan backgrounds, so they were worshipping Roman gods and planets and all types of things, and now they're in church every week, and so Paul writes them a letter to teach them, you know, what God's plan was from eternity past for them in the present. 
Uh, and the letter still speaks to us today, and that's why we're preaching from it, because we believe it's God's word for then and now. Uh, and we've seen in the first three chapters God's big plan of salvation, that he, you know, that first song we sung, You, my God, have saved my soul, that he planned in eternity to pull us from death to life. And then chapters four through six turn on verse one, where it says, Live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Uh, and the rest of the book now goes into detail of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of our salvation. If our God has purchased us from death and given us new life, what does it look like to live for Him? And if you're not yet a believer here today, you can kind of be watching on and listening, thinking, what would it look like if I was to become a Christian? What should I expect of Christian community? And that's what you can kind of be thinking about and wrestling with as we go through this passage Last week, we saw that one of the things that it looks like is to kind of put on your baggy green and live in a unified way as a team. Um, so as a church, we're to love each other like no one else in the world loves each other. It ought to be closer and more unified than any other place in the world. Uh, and it's all our responsibility. That was last week. This week, Paul kind of, same theme, unity, but a different angle. Um, so would you read with me verse 7? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he'd also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we said that, you know, the Christian life is lived in light of what has been done for us. That we, in a sense, we're like Australian cricket players. We've received the special... I'm going to keep doing that. That's not going to help. Um, we received the special baggy green, which is what you get when you join the Australian cricket team. It's your prized possession. And, and you ought to live up to your baggy green kind of status. Uh, and so, therefore, the way we live as Christians, we should always be thinking, because of what Christ has done, I should live in light of that. We don't earn our position on the team. It's all been done for us. We, all, we live in the, the environment of grace. 
But still, we have this duty to live as those who wear a baggy green, you know, the baggy green of salvation. Um, and if you don't know what that is, you can Google it later. Uh, but one of the things about, you know, this image of every one of us wearing a baggy green is that it means that we're unified. As a little local church, we're all on the same team. We've all got little green caps on. No one's got like a pink cap or, you know, the Kiwis, they're called the black caps. No one's got a different color hat on. If you're a Christian and you're a member of this church, we're all on the same team, going together for the same course. And that's what Paul was trying to say last week. Because of who God is, the, the unified Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're unified as a team, on a church, together, one body. But now he changes tact a little bit in verse 7 and introduces, you know, he says literally, but, um, which is to bring about contrast. Because the unity we have in this team, all wearing the same cap, doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to look the same, do the same things, or have the same gifts. And so Paul is really now addressing the question, what does it look like to live out our unity, although we're so different? And what he wants us to all know is that each one of us has a God-appointed task to fill in this church. Every single player in this team is here by God's appointment and is actually equipped and given grace by God to do a job that he wants you to do. And so, you know, when you're choosing teams in, you know, sport and you choose two captains and then they're kind of choosing out who they want, they start with the best and you get to the worst and you think, oh man, what am I going to do on this team? You know, I feel like when you're the last person chosen, it's embarrassing and awkward. But, you know, in God's church, it's not like that. In God's community, he chooses people and then not based on their ability, he gets them in and then he gives them abilities and says, all right, your job now that you're in, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this. And so if you're, you know, joining this church or new or even a part of the launch team that helped start it, and you might think, what, what's my place? I, you know, I'm, I'm not able to do this. I'm not able to do these things. I'm not, like, as gifted as that person or as holy as that person. Or where do I fit? Should I be, like, more like them? Should I start copying, you know, their gifting and try, you know, try and play guitar like Henry or keys like Henry or sing like Henry? Should I be like Henry? Which is what everyone is thinking each week. I wish I could be more like Henry. And this passage is here to say, no, don't become more like Henry. You know, become the person and use the gifts that God has given you. So we all come into church, all as members. We're all brought onto the team, not by our skill, but by his divine choosing. Once we join the team, we all get the hat, but we don't all play the same position. Not everyone's a bowler. That would, then there'd be no batters. Not everyone's a batter, there'd be no bowlers. Not everyone could be the wicketkeeper or silly mid-on. Or, you know, I won't go too far into cricket now. But you get the idea, everyone has to play a different position so that we can actually achieve what God wants to have done. And so the, the, the real main point that I think Paul was getting through in this section is this, that diversity within unity produces maturity. So, you know, the, the goal, the end goal of what God is trying to get done in this church is not like that we win the ashes or that we become this most amazing church in the world, better than any other church. That's not the goal. The goal, as we read, is that a diverse church that's unified, working as one body, will become a mature church. Full manhood, strong and healthy, able to withstand the storms and the winds of life. That's the goal for every little local church, and that's our hope, and that's what this passage is all about. So what's your place on the team? Where do you fit? Well, let's have a look at this um, passage in three points today. 
Point number one, the diversity in our ministry gifting. Read again verse 7. So the, point number one, the diversity in our ministry gifting. So there's one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The beautiful way that Jesus has orchestrated the church is that he himself graces each and every single Christian with an appointed gift for the use of his glory. Everyone in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord has sovereignly chosen and given you abilities and skills to use in his service. Grace was given. That, that word means gift or, you know, kindness, mercy. It's a similar word to the word used in 1 Corinthians, spiritual gifts. It's not the same word, but it's the same idea. That for every member of the church, God imbues us with power so that we have a place on the team. There's no one that's like perpetually, you know, the, the person that's not included in the team. You know, when you're playing and there's someone that's not very good, and you're like, oh, you just sit on the bench and wait, and, and then the whole game goes past and you haven't called on them because you actually don't want them in the team. Jesus' team is not like that. Everyone's in, everyone has a part, and everyone has a gift. It's not like, um, you know, at a kid's party when there's a pinata, and the kids go at it, and they're whacking at it, they're whacking at it, and eventually it spills everywhere. And there's always some kid that ends up with 6,000 lollies, and there's always someone that misses out. And you think, oh, you know, and then all the parents are like, oh, you should share. And like, no, but I won them. I got them all. And the kid's like, oh, I'm so disappointed. Yeah. God's giving is not like that. It's not like you have to scramble and find a gift, and then some of you just miss out. Um, his giving is actually completely different, uh, and which is what Paul kind of expresses in verses 8 through um, 10, which is kind of this weird inclusion in this section. You're probably reading it going, what does that mean? Well, if you were asking that, I was asking the same thing as I was preparing. But I think Jesus is trying to show us that God's way of giving out gifts is dependent on who Jesus is, um, not on the normal way the world works, clawing to the top and scrambling and using everything you got. It's totally different. Um, and he wants to show who's really leading this church. And it's not Paul, it's not me, it's the Lord. So, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes back to Psalm 68, which is this great psalm celebrating God's triumph over all the enemies of Israel and his ascension to Mount Sion and, and all the captives come to him and start giving him gifts. So he quotes that. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So in the ancient world, when a king conquered a city, he'd go out and all the people that he'd conquered would be in a train behind him and they'd all be following along, you know, in, in chains and slavery and then they would have to give all their spoils to the king and then the king would give it out to the, the conquering, you know, nation with him as the spoils of war. And, and that's really the picture of, you know, Israel conquering Egypt. They get to Sinai, they're free from slavery and now they've got all this gold and silver, they've got the promised land before them and that's where Paul is going back to but he changes it a little bit instead of in if you go back to Psalm 68 in your Bible it says that the king he receives gifts but Paul changes it now that the king and he gave gifts to men uh, and so actually Paul is kind of taking the idea of this king receiving tribute 
and now changing it to be like, and now the king gives the tribute back to his conquering people. And so that's why he goes on to explain how this applies to Jesus in verse 9 through 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. So Jesus was in heaven. He descends to the humility, the humble point of being a man. And not only that, but he dies on the cross. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus descends, if you've read Philippians 2 and you know, humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. But then he was raised again into new life and the name above every name so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, And so Jesus is at the highest point of honor and glory. He sits on the throne, ruling in heaven, filling the cosmos with his glory. And that king, that saving, resurrecting, powerful king is ruling over his church. And from his throne, with all his power and might and glory, is going, I'm going to give Noah a gift. I'm going to give Anita a gift. And I'm going to give Jordan a gift. And I'm going to give Joe a gift. And I'm going to give Arby a gift. And, and so this picture Paul's trying to paint is that as our church works out, it's not us doing it. It's not us making it happen. It's the victorious, risen Lord Jesus, sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating all things so that his glory would spread and fill throughout the cosmos. How? Through little local churches in Parramatta and Warunga and Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, each working with the gifts that they've been given. So where do you fit in Jesus' team? Well, exactly where he wants you to be. Exactly with the right amount of gifting and skill and aptitude and desire that he wants you to have. And if you're not yet a Christian, you can look on and know that you can fully belong in this team if you follow the Lord Jesus. There's no bar you have to meet. There's no requirement of skill or holiness. You don't have to meet it because you can't. He descended onto the cross to die in our place. And he rose again, conquering death, so that anyone can come in, get a baggy green, get a gift, and be a part of the body. Anyone can join, and everyone has a place. And so Jesus gifts his church, gifts every single one of us with specific sets of gifts. Now, you might be thinking, but what is, where do I fit? What is my particular gift? Well, there's five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There's two in 1 Corinthians 12, there's one in 1 Peter 4, there's one in Ephesians 4, um, and there's one in Romans 12. Um, and you could go to those passages, I could show you them later, Um, But they're not an exhaustive explanation of all the gifts that Jesus gives to the church. They're just illustrative of the types of things that God can do in a church. So there's gifts of serving and gifts of generosity. There's gifts of administration, gifts of leading, gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues, gifts of healing, gifts of words of knowledge, and gifts of administration. You know, so there's a wide variety of different gifts. But basically, it's anything that the Lord has given you that you can use to serve his body and help it mature. Spiritual gifts are not for you to have a platform. It's for you to have, you know, a towel so you can get down on your knees and and wash other people's feet. And so we all have these gifts, and and they're somewhere. Often they're related to the, the skills, desires, and course of life that God has put you on. You might think, oh, I'm not that gifted, and, you know, I've just done an engineering course, and 
you know, I, I work as an engineer and then, you know, I just see things. I'm able to place things and make things happen. And I don't see how that relates to the church. And then suddenly you realize, oh, actually, if I apply those skills and all my training to the building up of the local church, actually, it could really help. Or I'm just a project manager and I just manage projects and I don't know. But then suddenly you're running the whole roster like Arby is and, 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 and Lavinia. And, you know, and every little one of us, our history, the way we were brought up, our parents, our teenage years, our university, all those things God can use as part of our gift mix to serve the local church. So, we don't have uniformity, we have unity, but we have diversity within that unity so that the body works well because everyone has a part to play. No one is left out. So not only does he give gifts to each one of us, but he also gives different types of people for the church, different roles for the people to kind of lead the people with gifts. And that leads us to point number two. So point one was the diversity in our ministry gifts. Point number two is the diversity in our ministry roles. Um, Let's read verse 11. So he, he gave gifts to us, but then verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry for building up the body of Christ. In that verse, we see that not only do each one of us have a gift, but God gives another gift to the church, the gift of leaders. People that can help organize and equip and you know, mobilize the body so that we're not all running in 100 different directions, but actually we have these leaders that can help funnel and channel the gifts into where God has ordained them to be. You see, each one of these kind of five realms is, is a word ministry. It's related to the Word of God. Because the leadership that the church needs most is not skilled organizers or skilled you know, event planners or great musicians or things like that. That's not what the church needs most. What the church needs most is men who can lead the church by rightly understanding what this Word says and equip others to know it in the depth of their being and then go and do it. So he's got the the apostles who are, you know, the original 12 plus. There were other people called apostles in the New Testament. Those who have been gifted with this particular sentness from God to make things happen. Uh, There's the prophets who are not the Old Testament prophets. They're actually New Testament prophets who were sent into these new church plants to help encourage and convict and exhort the churches to obey the, the teaching of the apostles. There's the evangelists who are those who are particularly gifted in reaching out missionally and equipping others to do the same. There's the shepherds, or another word for that is pastors. Those who are particularly gifted in caring for the flock of God. They're they're looking to protect, they're looking to feed, they're looking to stay in a local church. Whereas, you know, the, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, they might move around a little bit, but the pastors, they're staying with the flock, with the sheep. They're like God who calls himself, you know, Jesus, the excuse me, the chief shepherd. And then finally, there's teachers, those with the ability to unpack what the word of God says. Um, and you may, have a gift, you may have gifted teachers who aren't called to be pastors. I think that's why there's a distinction in the text there. So you've got these kind of five roles that Paul's picking up on here to say, look, Ephesian church, God's given you all different gifts, but he's given you the gift of leaders. Leaders are here to teach you the word of God, to, to guard you from error, and then to channel the church and direct it to God's um, you know, given purposes. It kind of 
flips the old picture of church ministry, you know, the kind of old Anglican model where, you know, you have the pyramid, the hierarchical structure where the minister does everything and the church kind of comes and receives. But that's not actually God's intention for the local church. We don't have a pyramid or we don't have a bus type structure where the the minister drives the bus and everyone's on the bus and you just kind of do whatever the minister says and you're all asleep because it's boring and you don't have any part to play. The, The image is totally different. If you look at the end of verse 12, it says that we are... The pastors are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the way the church works is not a hierarchical pyramid. It's not a bus where you're all kind of lumped in doing nothing. It's a body. Various weird elements. You know, you're like, why do we have elbows that look like this? And and you think, ah, but then, you know, there's a purpose to it. And the body only works when each part plays its bit. If you've ever, you know, knocked your elbow and you don't realize how much you use your elbow until you've got a bruise on the end of your elbow, it's like that in the church. You don't realize how much you need every individual element until one of those elements, you know, leaves or is, you know, sick or injured. And you're like, oh, wow, they played such a massive part to play. And so the role of pastors is to get each one of those body parts equipped and functioning and working well so that they can do the work of ministry. Um, and the work of ministry there just means serving. That's what the word um, ministry means in the New Testament. It just means serving. So as a church, my job is not primarily to do everything, but actually to equip you with the Word of God so that you can do the work of ministry, which is actually how our church functions. Because if it was up to me to do everything, we'd be the world's worst church plant, you know? I can't even clap and sing at the same time. We've got no hope, let alone organizing anything or making anything. That's not the way it works. Each has a part to play. The diversity within unity leads to maturity. Um, And the other element of that is my job to equip the saints is not to actually help you get better at your skills because I couldn't tell you, I couldn't help, if I tried to coach Henry in playing guitar, he'd get worse, okay? So my job is not actually to get upskill you. My job is to lead you in the Word of God so that you're a different person as you do your skill. So I build you up and protect you from false teaching and I preach the word and I help you in your character and I train godly men to lead in life groups and we disciple one another so that you change as a person so that while you're doing the works of ministry, you do them for the benefit of others and not for yourself and therefore you build up the body of Christ. As a pastor, my job is to look out and see, is there unity? Are people working well? You know, is this team serving the church or is it actually draining from the church? And is this ministry serving or is it draining? And so part of my job is to equip you guys, not by doing it or even training you how to do it better, but actually to look out for your souls so that as you do it, you do it differently. I think that's Paul's vision there. And that's how the body of Christ is built up. Um, So praise the Lord, because otherwise we'd be in a lot of trouble, um, because I have very little amount of skills. And so each one of us has a part to play. I have a role to play. You all have a role to play. As more pastors come on and gifted leaders come on, we all work. And when we actually submit to one another and lean in and learn from one another, in humility, like we looked at last week, we have that character of unity. We'll have this diversity, which means we can do more. We can actually, instead of the minister monopolizing ministry and taking it all on, we actually multiply the ministry out. 
And we can do further, we can spread further and wider and faster when the saints are equipped and they go out and do their work. Which, praise the Lord, you guys uh, do an incredible job of this. I mean, the evidence, the proof is in the pudding uh, that this, you know, pattern of ministry is how we function. And it ought to remain that way as long as we live, um, as long as this church exists. And for all the new people, I love seeing the new guys with the new shirts on, on welcoming and having a part to play now. You know, it's brilliant to see that. And as new people join, don't think, oh, the ministry slots are filled. No, 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 don't worry. We will continue to multiply the ministry slots and make room for you to use your gift. Everyone has a part to play here. And each part builds up the body of Christ. So we have this diversity within unity. You have to maintain the unity. If you just have diversity, then we're all fragmented in division. If we just have unity and uniformity, then we don't do all the things we ought to do. So we need diversity within unity. But what's the goal? Yeah, I already mentioned it at the very beginning, but what is God trying to get done in our local church? Well, that's where Paul goes in point number three in verses 13, really, through 16. What's the goal of our diverse ministry? Point number three, the goal of our diverse ministry. I'll just read verse 13. Actually, I'll read 12 and 13. He gave the apostles, prophets, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why? Or how? What's the point? Until, so this is his vision, until what's going to happen? We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, God's goal for us is not that we would be amazing and that we would have the world's best-run church and this amazing worship experience and a service tied down and no wasted minutes and no stumbling sentences and the kids' ministry curriculum is incredible and every kid slides down in a slippery dip into the kids' work and it's amazing and they come out and say, it was safe and fun every week. That's not the goal. That's not what the goal, the God-ordained goal for our church is maturity. What God wants in local churches around the world is mature local churches. Not babies, not infants, but mature, healthy, strong churches. Manly churches, even, you could say, in that sense. That they're not teenagers or infants. You see, we love, you know, watching babies mature and grow up. Um, I was just up the coast in Fingal Bay with... Um, families that we've been going away with now for 25 years in a row. Um, so 1996, we first started going away in the same time of the year. And so over those 25 years now, we who were kids who were six years old are now you know, nearly 30 and we have kids and then all the other kids now have kids. And so there's the, the grandparents, the kids, you know, and the, and the grandchildren all there. And you should, you know, the grandparents are following around each person's other kids and taking photos and, you know, oh, look at them walk, look at them talk, look what they can do. And we love to watch the, you know, the children develop and mature and grow. And we get excited when they take a step and when they say something and it's all great. And, you know, recently our kids started school and so Jasper was like, oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, each little step of development we love to see, because uh, we love to things see, see things grow and mature. Uh, and we get excited even about little things with kids. We're like, wow, they, they're excited about a red ball. Look at them go. They're excited about a red ball. And we're like, I'm so proud of him. He's excited about a red ball. And you think, wow, Judah, you're amazing. 
But if Judah was still like that at 25 and he's chasing around a Red Bull, like, whoa, a Red Bull, you think, man, something is seriously wrong with that kid. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a silly illustration, but we love to see the maturity, but we want to see it keep growing and growing um, because the church is not meant to be like a 25-year-old chasing a little red ball around going, oh, it's awesome. That's not the picture. Paul wants to see a strong, mature, well-grounded body of Christians who can fight against any doctrinal error, any wolf that comes in. They can spot, you know, they can smell a rat, so to speak. Uh, And so that's really what he's trying to say to the Ephesians is that be unified in your heart, be diversified in your ministry, everyone play your part, and then the result will be, this is what I want for you, that you'll be mature. You see, because Paul planted these baby churches, and 10 years on, he doesn't want to see them as baby churches anymore. He wants to see them as mature churches, that they're not like chasing red balls anymore. And so what does a mature church look like? Well, I think Paul gives us about four or five marks of a mature church in verses 13 to 16. Now, for us, we sort of planted out of a bit of maturity as a church. We weren't like, it wasn't like it was just me and Maddie and we started a church and we, everyone here was an unbeliever six months ago and now everyone's a Christian. That would be a crazy way to start a church. And people do it, uh, but that would be more like what the Ephesian church was like. That's not 100% our experience, but still we can learn from this. This is, ought to be our goal as a church. So kind of four marks from these verses of what a mature church looks like. This is what will happen, brothers and sisters. If you take your gift, God-given, and you use it, and you build up the body of Christ, and we do it in unity and harmony, first mark of a mature church. A mature church is unified in our faith and our knowledge of Jesus. Verse 13. He wants to see that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. A mature church knows the faith well, and they know Jesus Christ well. We don't start with the gospel, as we said today, and then move on to something more interesting. No, no, a mature church knows Jesus and the cross and the resurrection more fully, more deeply, more widely in their life. Secondly, a mature church is always becoming more like Jesus. Read the rest of verse 13. So we are unified in our knowledge and faith, and then we to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul's expectation is that our little local church over time should become like Jesus Christ in all of his glory. That we should be as wise as Jesus. We should be as powerful in a sense of facing temptation and saying no like the Lord Christ was. Merciful like Christ kind like Christ, courageous like Christ. Jesus is the most manly and mature man that ever lived. No one surpassed him. He had the fullness of God dwelling bodily, and he is the expression of mature manhood. And so our goal as a church is to be more and more like him. And a mature church, you come in, you're like, wow, this this is what Jesus would have lived like. That's what it looks like for us to be a mature church. You meet people, they're like, they serve like Jesus served. They're kind like Jesus was kind. They speak like Jesus spoke. They know his words. They do his commands. That's the second mark of a mature church, always becoming more like Jesus. 
Number three, a mature church guards against error. Let's read verse 14. So we do all these things. Jesus gave gifts. He gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to reach maturity and unity and knowledge, to become more like Jesus, so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, Paul's now kind of leaning into the Ephesian church and saying, guys, you've got to grow up. Because there's evil people out there who will try and destroy your church through false doctrine, false teaching, and false ideas. This is not like, you know, he's not saying watch out for the wind and waves. He's saying watch out for cunning people who will slyly and subtly turn you away from the gospel. They'll get more excited about secondary matters of importance in the church and never talk about the fact that they were crucified with Christ and rose again. They'll be so excited about different ideas that, you know, they'll start gaining attractors and followers and, you know, start gaining, you know, campaigning for different ideas, but they're never talking about the gospel. And it, our danger is not going to be, you know, that someone comes in and says, you know what, Jesus wasn't actually God. You know, I am Jesus. I'm God. I'm here. And, and when, when no one in this church is going to be like, wow, I didn't think about I guess we better follow you. That's not how. It's going to be more subtle. It's going to be a subtle materialism, a subtle individualism. You know, you just got to do what's right for you. Um, you got to get rid of the toxic people from your life. You, you know, it's going to be those subtle messages. Ah, you know, God's plan for sexuality, you know, does it really fit with now? And how can you be, isn't he a God of love? Aren't you, you're being so judgmental. Jesus wasn't a judge. Like, why, why are you here trying to say no to these things? It's going to be subtle. We're not to be like the little kid finding the red ball and going, whoa, look at that ball, and chasing it. That's the image of verse 14, is that they're kind of enamored by a different doctrine and they start following it because they don't know what's better. Our goal as a church is to be so mature in our understanding of the knowledge of the gospel and the cross that we can smell a rat when we see it. We can see uh, that new book, like it looks fancy and it's interesting new ideas, but it's not that great because it's not built on the foundation of the word. It's not built with things that will last. So we're not going to give our time and energy to it. Even though all the evangelical world thinks this is the world's greatest book, we're not going to read it, you know, because it's not that great, because I can't see how it lines up with you know, the Bible. That's what I want us to be like as a church. And our various ministries help us do that. The Sunday morning preaching, the life group leading, the kids' ministry, like every week when we're teaching our kids and we're bringing it back to the gospel, we're telling them something massive. The most important thing in anything is the gospel. Keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing is to keep that the main thing. Just keep Jesus. The answer is Jesus every time. That's what we're saying in the kids' ministry. But by each one of us serving and playing our part, we're teaching them, don't get distracted. Don't follow the red ball. Man up, so to speak. Okay. And finally, the final mark of a mature church in this passage is it's growing in love. So, verse 15 and 16. Instead of being buffeted and moved by every doctrine and person and exciting teacher that comes in and book and all that type of stuff, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way 
into him who is the head, into Christ. So how do we avoid doctrinal error? We speak the truth in love. So we don't become known for like shouting down every false teaching and be like, you know, this sermon is on how this church is bad. You know, that's not what we're going to do. We speak the truth, but we do it in love. But we must speak the truth, but we must do it in love. John Stott said it well. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And this applies not just in our Bible teaching, but in our life groups, in our fellowship as a church. You and I need to speak the truth in love to one another if we're ever going to mature as a church. We can't always pat each other on the back and say, well done. (laughs) There's times where we're going to have to say, brother, the way that you were talking to your wife then was inappropriate. Or, I just have an observation. You always speak to your kids in this way. Or, you know, this, you know, I've been praying, I've been asking the Lord, and I just have a sense that maybe you don't have the first love that you used to have. Is that true? Is that for you? And as brothers and sisters, we need to be speaking the truth in love to one another if we're ever going to mature and build up as a church. It's awkward. It's hard. It's hard to just do it without like telling 15 other people that you're going to talk to this one person about a thing. That's, that's not unity. That's called gossip. Um, speaking the truth in love is this process of so knowing the truth and so loving the person that you can't not say it. Um, and that's what we're called to do if we're to have a mature church. And secondly, using our gifts in love, uh, sorry, the second thing about growing in love is that we use our gifts with love. Verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We will mature and grow as a church as we use our gifts to serve one another and love one another. And we do it not for ourselves, but for the good of the brothers and sisters we see in this room. It's a beautiful picture. When every joint with which it is equipped, each one of us is part of the the body, the mood, the joints, and each part has to work properly so that the body will grow. Isn't it amazing that we get to be a part of this? That the conquering, risen King Jesus, who defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross, who's filling the earth with his glory across the cosmos, has said, Noah Chavez, here's a gift, build my body. Amanda, here's a gift, build my body. Briar, you know, from our other church in Runga, here's a gift, build my body, sister. Each part must work properly in order that the body may grow. And what a privilege we have in being a part of that great purpose. Which is why our church ought not to be just a thing we do in our life. It's one of the main goals and central priorities of our entire life. Because we're a part of the conquering king filling the earth with his glory. It's amazing. So, unity within, or diversity within unity leads to maturity. When each one of us play our part, we grow and strengthen as a local church. But finally, so you don't end, you're thinking, man, how are we going to do this? It's all up to me. Well, Paul makes it very clear that it's actually not all up to us. Verse 7, Jesus gives the gift. Verse 11, he gives the leaders. And verse 16, we grow up into the head who is Christ. And who makes the body grow ultimately? Him. Jesus is the one that makes our body grow. So we work, we have a part to play 
but we're not the ultimate, determining, discerning part in it. It's the Lord Christ. And so we can work with all of our energy and have none of the burden, none of the anxiety or none of the stress. Because we're called to play our part, but ultimately Jesus is the one that will make our church grow. And he's our hope. He's the one leading the church, not the pastors, you know, not the gifted people. It's Jesus. So each one of us has a part to play. And brothers and sisters, you play your part so well. Keep doing it. And for the next 30 years, hopefully we'll mature and become a man in the church. In Jesus' name, would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you so much that we have your word and that we have salvation in Christ. I thank you that you have brought us together as a local church to function as a body here, that we can display your glory to the world. And so, Lord, would you equip these saints so that they will do the works of ministry, so that we will become a mature church who love you, who know you, who can smell a rat and get rid of any false doctrine or teaching from our lives, who speak the truth in love and play our part in love. And Lord, would you do all this, God, and we're totally dependent on you. Would you make our body grow and may you be greatly glorified in the process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.